actually interesting. Sussman was brought in for the teleplay. Now, <clears throat> he did the teleplay for the last episode, but this was his first time doing two episodes back-to-back. Usually there's a bit of a breather time there, and you can work the script and figure it out up here, you know, get some things dealt with. What's funny is this was such a last-minute change, he ended up doing this during the production of the first episode. That's uh, it's pretty rushed. Speaking of Rush, this was directed by Marvin Rush. Hey, he's finally directing. Now, I didn't quite mention something last time, and I want to clarify. Marvin Rush has directed before. Barely. He directed one episode of TNG and two episodes of Voyager. And this brings it up to four. But I just wanted to mention that, because he is here directing. Woo! They actually liked his stuff so much, they ended up bringing him back. Go figure. This also leads to kind of a weird thing. Obviously, by this point, Majel Barrett has passed. We no longer have her with us. Which sucks. She was, by all accounts, an awesome lady. Certainly better than her husband. But I bring this up, because not, not to bring up that particular old wound, but rather because this is, for our purposes, the final entry of Majel Barrett into track. Remember, we kind of said a goodbye to Loxana Troy over in TNG already, since we covered that. Even though the DS9 stuff was after it, we covered that stuff after the DS9 stuff. And while we have already covered Star Trek 2009, which is actually her final entry here, this is the final thing we're covering. Her usage here in the voiceover for the crew, uh, excuse me, the computer of the Defiant. I wish I had something profound to say. I really don't. That woman has been involved in a lot of Trek for a lot of years. And frankly, we are lesser for her absence. I don't really have anything more profound than that. Archer continues to be a bad boss because he's an idiot. All right, you need to fix this ship that has super advanced technology from a century in the future and another dimension in 12 hours. Okay. Granted, he has a reason to be on a deadline, but he's just being a dick. Which leads me to him threatening to Paul, I'm gonna kill you, and I hate you, and I hate all your subhuman species. But also, I need you to continue working on the show. Could you do that, please? Archer, you would be the ur-example of the bad boss. The evil emperor, you know? That is what he wants to be. Then they go ahead and get into the TOS uniforms. They actually look pretty good on him, I'll give you that. Um, but then again, those are decent-looking uniforms. Not my favorite. I prefer the late, uh, very, very late TNG, late DS9 versions myself. But anyways, this is when they start to look up info on their alternate selves. Question. Would you? Like, given a ch- chance, given a choice, would you look up on your alternate self to see what you've been up to? Especially since those databanks are from the future. So you get to see all of your alternate self's history, or at least all of it that's in the databanks. Hmm. <clears throat> For, for food for thought. What, uh, <laughs> there's one little tidbit I had to comment on, though. So they, they look up to Paul, or not to Paul, excuse me, Hoshi. And Hoshi's like, I don't want to hear about it. That's appropriate. But then Archer looks himself up, and it turns out his name is one of, among the most recognized in the Federation. And he's considered the preeminent explorer of his time. That's probably why we never hear from him again or about him ever again after this. This is one of those dangers of making a prequel. I wanted to talk about this briefly because this would have been a perfect time to address this exact point. They're all so insistent on closing up plot holes. Close one up here. Have a line that says that his history is redacted. And that's it. 
I know, I know. They, you know, they weren't going to get a season five, but that's what I would do. Archer's history is redacted. And just leave that as is. You could eventually develop that in season five. You could do something with it to explain why his file is off the records and why nobody's heard of him, and thus nobody references him in any of the future stuff. We could then also, even if you don't do that, even if season five never happened, which is true, then we could just presume whatever we want to. Maybe it's his involvement with section 31. Maybe it's what he did with the temporal cold war. Maybe there's something else going on that had to do with Daniels or something. But it would explain rather neatly why this general, you know, the super venerated man is never mentioned alongside the names like Kirk or Picard. Anyways, this then leads to his mention about the subhuman species. Watch Archer's neck. He does, like, I, I have a pretty thick neck, actually. I'm kind of embarrassed by it because it looks terrible on me. But, but Bacula just has this thing. Like, I don't know if you can see here. I'm looking at my preview pane over there. It's just... You see the veins just really sticking out there as he's doing it. It's like, good lord, Bacula, holy crap. This leads to Kelby. Poor, poor Kelby. He dies to Slar, who is the Gorn slave master. Question, was he brought in by the Tholians, or does he just work with the Tholians? Hmm. Either way, they've been wanting to get the Gorn into Enterprise for a while. They failed because Gorn first contact happened in TOS. It just keeps being a problem, doesn't it? But Mirror Universe rules go out the window, so hey, there's a Gorn, and we have him being full CGI. We actually get to see him, too. If I might be so bold, I kind of like how the Gorn look over in STO. I actually have a Gorn as one of my main uh, bridge officers in STO, and I, I, I think he looks awesome, personally. And, of course, there's the main Klingon ambassador, who is a Gorn. <laughs> but anyways, they do a decent job with it for the time. It hasn't aged super well, but, I mean, given the limitations of, temp of time and budget and TV budget and cut budget. I think it's okay. I'm with it. You only really see him a couple times anyways. This leads to Archer starting to hallucinate pretty badly. This is something that's going to be a recurring trend. Allow me to once again pontificate on the values of front-loaded storytelling. There's two bits of front-loaded storytelling in this episode in particular. Technically three, but we'll cover the third one in a minute. And we'll cover the second one last. But the first one is important here. Archer being cuckoo for Cocoa Buffs. He is way out there. And Bacula this whole time has been doing little ticks, physical ticks, like, like little twitches and just kind of the thing with the neck. And he's does this thing with his jaw periodically. And he's just kind of unhinged looking. Considering the hallucinations are starting to push him and the whole self-esteem thing and the whole, well, I mean, for God's sakes, Archer is hearing voices his own voice, telling him what to do, and he starts listening to it. Do I need to make my point here? Archer was completely set up to be the next... Oh, God, I can't think of his name. The the, the, the crazy evil emperor back in uh, Babylon 5. You know, he was, he was right in line to be that kind of a character and that kind of a person. And there's a lot of build-up to this, and the hallucinations is just when it's really gotten obvious. Nevertheless, he then defeats the Gorn because he has to prove that he's not that terrible been there, hashtag relatable, does it with the grav plating, which is something they've been trying to do since season one and never found a good position for it. I find that funny. Then we have the food cubes. Remember the food cubes back at TOS? I kept pointing them out and I kept making fun of them because they kept having these stupid food cubes. It's great. But they actually have the food cubes there. There was actually a cut line. There were several line scenes and sections of scenes that were cut uh, for time. One of them was 
All the food you could have, and you selected that, which I found amusing. Anyways, <clears throat> so, food cubes. Uh, this is also when we have a little bit of T'Pol trying to convince uh, Phlox, hey, you know, we, you, you should join the rebellion. You, sh- you should join the rebellion. Listen, I'll be your best friend, but no. We do know that Phlox is receptive. Why? Because it doesn't immediately shut her down and report her. Instead, he just listens, which says all it needs to. Then we see Admiral Black, played by the great Gregory Itson. He's another one of those amusing little characters. We've seen him a bit. He's been in DS9 and in Voyager. And uh, I think he played a random Vulcan in Enterprise prior to this. I'm not sure exactly. And then we see Saval. Hey, Saval's here. He's on board the Avenger, Admiral Black's ship. In fact, he's the main science officer and probably the first officer of the Avenger. So he's doing pretty well for himself. By the way, supposedly the Avenger is actually named for the Avenger over in Star Wars. I just thought I'd comment on that. Just random little thing. Anywho. <clears throat> so then a Constitution-class cruiser comes in and just pastes everything. Which, yeah, it should. What's funny here, though... Archer is so stupid, he keeps wasting torpedoes, when, honestly, phasers would probably be sufficient. Oh, don't mistake me, a show of force is relevant, but you can't replenish those. At least not yet. So you need to make sure you have those torpedoes, and probably as many of them as possible, if A, you need them, just in case, you know, for an actual dangerous situation, and B, so you have enough to experiment with to reverse engineer to make your own. Anyways... This is an important part here. Uh, there's this bit where T'Pol and Saval interact with each other. That's cool. Black mentions how he recommends. I'm going to recommend giving you your own command at the first opportunity. Black, that is a very stupid move on your part. This guy is currently in charge of his own dreadnought equivalent, which just absolutely swayed an entire battle and saved your life in the process. And you're trying to... to take command of it in probably the most amateurish way possible. Naturally, he gets disintegrated for his efforts because Archer listens to the voices in his head. Excuse me, voice, singular. Just his own. (laughs) What's funny, though, is that the hallucination Archer is probably right about the whole situation. There's not a lot of ways this is going to work out well for Mirror Archer. He's too unstable and too unwieldy and nobody trusts him, and let's be honest, they're probably going to try and eject him out the airlock at the first opportunity, so probably the right move, believe it or not. This is a good point. There's this big speech he gives. Actually, there was a cut line where he, where he turns to the guard and says, shoot the first person who stops applauding. <laughs> That's the kind of person Archer is right there. Anyways, <clears throat> he gives this big speech, and we find out a few details here. Now, this is something they've hinted at before. The Rebellion is winning. The Terran Empire is on a decline right now. And that makes perfect sense. This, once again, lines out perfectly... With everything I've been talking about. Because the Empire's corrupt. Yep, the Empire's evil. Yep. But Archer is not Emperor material. He's not the person to revitalize and fix things. We need someone out there who can be long-term thinking. Someone who can outmaneuver situations. And someone who remains relatively under the radar while still maintaining control. Meanwhile, Hoshi tries to convince uh, Archer to not have flocks genocided, even as he plans to have all the other subhuman races genocided, because you can't trust them, screw them, kill them. <clears throat> this leads to the rebellion uh, bribing flocks. This leads to Hoshi being the only one who's on to Paul. Funny, at one point, Paul says, humanity will pay for their arrogance someday. And they will. 
see DS9. But uh, Tucker saves the day. Archer destroys the Avenger. Idiot. And then celebrates and is immediately poisoned. What I love most about this is he's poisoned, and he barely has enough time to realize that Hoshi poisoned him before he dies. And she just had to know. She had to make sure he knew. It's almost like when she threatened to kill you and has hated you this entire time, maybe you shouldn't have kept her literally in your bed, you moron. All right, let's talk about this. Because this is the second bit of front-loaded storytelling this arc has had. And it actually ties into the third they knew from the very beginning, and this is true, uh, and you can see just by doing it, but interviews have confirmed this. They knew from the very beginning Hoshi was always going to end up on top. No pun intended. She was going to be the winner of all of these particular affairs and become the new empress of the Terran Empire. Cool. But knowing that in advance allowed them to push all those little character tidbits and little inferences so that you can see, especially on replay, how she's building herself up to that position. How she manipulates and maneuvers around everyone around her. She's been doing this since her first scene with Forrest, and she continues to do this all the way up until her scene with Archer, where she poisons him. Frankly, the way she deals with this is actually quite impressive, and is the kind of thing that this needs to be, because we have set in a dangerous precedence. Whoever has this dangerous bit of technology, the Defiant, gets to be on top. They are the Emperor slash Empress. So she has to maintain that, but the episodes have shown consistently that this Hoshi is more than capable of managing that balancing act and outmaneuvering everyone around her. So, forgive me for gushing yet again, but once again, the value and benefit of front-loaded storytelling. The other tidbit, which is also obvious in its own right, is the fact that this was to lead into more Mirror Universe stuff. Now, I already talked about this, but uh, in summary, they wanted to do as much as they could of just the Mirror Universe stuff, over in Season 5. There's varying accounts as to how much they were going to do. Some people say two, some people say four episodes. Uh, Braga has mentioned once, probably semi-jokingly, that he wanted to do an entire season of the Mirror Universe, and nobody would want to watch a thing where the Mirror Universe was the entire point of a Star Trek season, right? <clears throat> point being, this is a direction they wanted to move in, and I can kind of see why. They have laid quite a few bricks for future storylines, and there's a lot they can do with this. This also beautifully explains away uh, everything. Now, I said I'd talk about this, so here we are. They wanted to... So, how is the Terran Empire so dominant when they're losing to this rebellion? When there's an alliance of other races which are just crushing them? When they're at a point in history when humanity is arguably at its weakest in the interstellar community? Now, they got a leg up... The Terrans got a leg up over the humans by virtue of having taken all that Vulcan tech and conquered Vulcan early, rather than being held back by the Vulcans like you know the humans were. But that's only one leg up, and that's not enough long term. So bit by bit, they were starting to fall behind. But remember, everything I've been talking about, about how the humans are the small dogs on the, and, and they're, they're the tiny little thing and they have to rely on negotiation and they're just surrounded by much bigger and much stronger forces, all that I've been talking about still applies in the mirror universe. It just, just doesn't apply quite as much, but it still applies. Ergo, we have a question. How does the Terran Empire continue to last unto TOS's time? We know it lasts at least dur and for quite a while after that until Spock kind of brings it down from within. Good job, Spock. But how does it gain such power and imminence when it is on such shaky leggings? Enter the Defiant. Now, this obviously wasn't planned. It couldn't possibly be. 
But this is the advantage of good backloaded storytelling. Improv, looking at the pieces on the board and figuring out a way to reconfigure them to make sense. This is actually quite brilliant in its own right. With the inclusion of the Defiant, not only do we have the new precedent set, which I already talked about with Hoshi, but now we have this massive advantage, which means they're going to get another leg up. And then, and I'm pretty sure Hoshi is going to start reverse engineering this, which is going to lead to them being able to figure out even more stuff and get another leg up. Now, I do know the Defiant is referenced in Discovery. Again, I still haven't seen Discovery, so I don't know the specifics. But I do know this is something that's brought up during the Mirror Universe arc over there, and it's something that will be relevant, thus showing that some of the ideas that were supposed to be in Season 5 were at least addressed or acknowledged when it came to Season 1 Discovery. I don't know if they did a good job of it, for obvious reasons. But my point is, this smooths this whole plot hole out perfectly. It is actually really cool the way it works. Naturally, multiple legs up mean the Empire has its own strength, but will inevitably decline, just like it was already doing, because what you're doing is you're giving it a shot in the arm. You're not ensuring total dominance forever, you're ensuring temporal do temporary dominance. And, um, well, Spock. So with the ship being the crown, and the Terran Empire being stronger, and someone who is competent and capable at the helm... You can see why this is such a sea change for the Mirror Universe. And it's probably one of the single biggest important moments for the entire Mirror Universe, because just about all their history is being altered from here on. Other little side note before I go. They actually made a point of leaving the fate of several of the crew members ambiguous, notably being Reed is the big one there. But they did this for se in several cases. And they did this on purpose. After all, they wanted to make sure that those blocks were there for when they wanted to come back and do stuff in Season 5. Because this stuff was written before, you know, the stories were written out before they knew. All the stories were written out before they knew, even the final one. It's just the specific teleplays and the final versions of the scripts weren't. So that sucks. We will never see a continuation of this other than in Discovery Season 1. Three episodes to go, and effectively, next week and the week after, we'll be covering what is, in every way that matters, the finale of Enterprise. I am quite curious to see how we will do with it, but I will see you there next time. <laughs>